Book 14, Part 2 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Weir. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book 14. Part 2 The full space of a year detained us there, and I, remaining that long stretch of time, saw many things, and heard as much besides. And this, among the many other things, was told me secretly by one of the four handmaidens of those rites. While Circe passed her time from all apart, except my chief, she brought me to a white marble shape, a youth who bore a woodpecker upon his head. It stood erected in a hallowed place, adorned with many wreaths. When I had asked the statue's name, and why he stood revered in that most sacred temple, and what caused that bird he carried on his head, she said, Listen, Macarius, and learn from this tale too the power of Circe, and weigh the knowledge well. Picus, offspring of Saturn, was the king of the Orsonian land, one very fond of horses raised for war. The young man's form was just what you now see, and had you known him as he lived, you would not change a line. His nature was as noble as his shape. He could not yet have seen the steeds contend four times in races held with each fifth year at Grecian Ellis. But his good looks had charmed the dryads born on Latin hills. Naiads would pine for him. Both goddesses of spring and goddesses of fountains pined for him. And nymphs that live in streaming albula, Numesis, Anio's course, brief-flowing Almo, and rapid Nar, and Farphorus, so cool in its delightful shades. All these and those which haunt the forest lake of Scythian Diana and the other nearby lakes. But, heedless of all these, he loved a nymph whom on the hill called Palatine, tis said, Vanilia bore to Janus double-faced. When she had reached the age of marriage, she was given to Picus Laurentine, preferred by her above all others. Wonderful indeed her beauty! but more wonderful her skill in singing, from which art they called her Canaan's. The fascination of her voice would move the woods and rocks and tame wild beasts and stay long rivers, and it even detained the wandering bird. Once, while she sang a lay with high, clear voice, Picus, on his keen horse, rode in Laurentian fields to hunt the boar, two spears in his left hand, his purple cloak fastened with gold. The daughter of the sun wandered in woods nearby to find new herbs growing on fertile hills, for she had left Circean fields called so from her own name. From a concealing thicket she observed the youth with wonder. All the gathered herbs dropped from her hands, forgotten, to the ground, and a hot fever flame seemed to pervade her marrow. 
When she could collect her thought, she wanted to confess her great desire. But the swift horse and his surrounding guards prevented her approach. Still you shall not escape me, she declared. Although you may be born on winds, if I but know myself, and if some potency in herbs remains, and if my art of charms does not deceive. Such were her thoughts, and then she formed an image of a bodiless wild swine, and let it cross the trail before the king, and rush into a woodland dense with trees, which fallen trunks made pathless for his horse. Picus at once, unconscious of all harm, followed the phantom prey, and, hastily quitting the reeking back of his good steed, he wandered in pursuit of a vain hope, on foot through that deep wood. She seized the chance, and by her incantation called strange gods with a strange charm, which had the power to hide the white moon's features, and draw thirsty clouds about her father's head. The changing sky then lowered more black at each repeated tone of incantation, and the ground exhaled its vapours, while his people wandered there along the darkened paths, until no guard was near to aid the imperiled king. Having now gained an opportunity and place, she said, O youth most beautiful, by those fine eyes which captivated mine, and by that graceful person which brings me, even me, a goddess, suppliant to you, have pity on my passion. Let the son who looks on all things be your father-in-law. But do not despise Circe the Titaness. But fiercely he repelled her and her prayer. Whoever you may be, you are not mine, he said. Another lady has my heart. I pray that for a lengthening space of time she may so hold me. I will not pollute conjugal ties with the unhallowed loves of any stranger, while the fates preserve to me the child of Janus, my dear Canaan's. Titan's daughter, when many pleas had failed, said angrily, You shall not leave me with impunity, and you shall not return to Canaan's. And by your experience you shall now learn what can be done by her so slighted. What a woman deep in love can do, and Circe is that slighted love. Then twice she turned herself to face the west, and twice to face the east. And three times then she touched the young man with her wand, and sang three incantations. Picus fled, but, marvelling at his unaccustomed speed, he saw new wings that spread on either side and bore him onward. Angry at the thought of transformation, also suddenly added a strange bird to the Lassian woods, he struck the wild oaks with his hard new beak, and in his rage inflicted many wounds on the long waving branches his wings took the purple of his robe. The piece of gold which he had used so nicely in his robe was changed to golden feathers, and his neck was rich as yellow gold. Nothing remained of Picus as he was except the name. While all this happened, his attendants called on Picus often, but in vain, throughout surrounding fields, and, finding not a trace of their young king, at length by chance they met with Circe, 
who had cleared the darkened air and let the clouds disperse before the wind and clear rays of the sun. Then, with good cause, they blamed her. They demanded the return of their lost king, and with their hunting spears they threatened her. She, sprinkling baleful drugs and poison juices over them, invoked the aid of night and all the gods of night from Erebus and Chaos, and desired the aid of Hecate with long, wailing cries. Most wonderful to tell, the forests leapt from fixed localities, and the torn soil uttered deep groans. The trees surrounding changed from life green to sick pallor, and the grass was moistened with besprinkling drops of blood. The stones sent forth harsh longings. Unknown dogs barked loudly, and the ground became a mass of filthy snakes, and unsubstantial hosts of the departed flitted without sound. The men all quaked, appalled. With magic rod she touched their faces, pale and all amazed, and at her touch the youths took on strange forms of wild animals. None kept his proper shape. The setting sun is resting low upon the far Tartesian shores, and now in vain her husband's expected by the eyes of longing Canaans. Her slaves and people run up about through all the forest, holding lights to meet him. Nor is it enough for that dear nymph to weep and frenzied tear her hair and beat her breast. She did all that and more. Distracted, she rushed forth and wandered through the Latin fields. Six nights, six brightening dawns, found her quite unrefreshed with food or sleep, wandering at random over hill and dale. The Tiber saw her last, with grief and toil, wearied and lying on its widespread bank. In tears she poured out words with a faint voice, lamenting her sad woe, as when the swan about to die sings a funereal dirge. Melting with grief at last she pined away, her flesh, her bones, her marrow liquefied and vanished by degrees as formless air, and yet the story lingers near that place, fitly named Canaan's by old time came and I. Such things I heard and saw through a long year, sluggish, inactive through our idleness. We were all ordered to embark again out on the deep, again to set our sails. The Titaness explained the doubtful paths, the great extent and peril of wild seas. I was alarmed, I will confess to you, so having reached these shores, I have remained. Macarius finished, and Aeneas's nurse, now buried in a marble urn, had this brief strange inscription on her tomb. My foster child of proven piety, burned me Kaita here. Although I was at first preserved from Argive fire, I later burned with fire, which was my due. The cable loosened from the grassy bank, 
they steered a course which kept them well away from ill-famed Circe's wiles, and from her home, and sought the groves where Tiber, dark with shade, breaks with his yellow sands into the sea. Aeneas then fell heir to the home, and won the daughter of Latinus, Faunus's son, not without war. A people very fierce made war, and Turnus, their young chief, indignant, fought to hold a promised bride. With Latium all Etruria was embroiled, a victory hard to win was sought through war. By foreign aid each side got further strength. The camp of Rutili abounds in men, and many throng the opposing camp of Troy. Aeneas did not find Evander's home in vain, but Venulus, with no success, came to the realm of exiled Diomed. That hero had marked out his mighty walls with favour of Iapidian Daunus, and held fields that came to him as marriage dower. When Venulus, by Turnus's orders, made request for aid, the Aetolian hero said that he was poor in men. He did not wish to risk in battle himself any troops belonging to his father-in-law, and had no troops of his own that he could arm for battle. Lest you should think I feign, he then went on, although my grief must be renewed because of bitter recollections of the past, I will endure recital now to you. After the lofty Ilion was burnt, and Pergama had fed the Grecian flames, and Ajax, the Narician hero, had brought from a virgin, for a virgin wronged, the punishment which he alone deserved on our whole expedition, we were then dispersed and driven by violent winds over the hostile seas. And we, the Greeks, had to endure in darkness, lightning, rain, the wrath both of the heavens and of the sea, and Caphereus, the climax of our woe. Not to detain you by relating such unhappy things in order, Greece might then have seemed to merit even Priam's tears. Although well-armed Minerva's care preserved me then, and brought me safe through rocks and waves, from my native Argos I was driven again, for outraged Venus took her full revenge, remembering still that wound of long ago, and I endured such hardships on the deep and hazards amid armies on the shore, that often I called those happy whom the storm, an ill that came on all, or Cepharius had drowned. I even wished I had been one of them. My best companions, having now endured utmost extremities in wars and seas, lost courage, and demanded a swift end of our long wandering. Acmon, by nature hot, and much embittered by misfortune, said, what now remains for you, my friends, that patience can endure? What can be done by Venus, if she wants to, more than she already has done? While we have a dread of greater evils, reason will be found for patience. But when fortune brings her worst, we scorn and trample fear beneath our feet. Upon the height of woe, why should we care? Let Venus listen. Let her hate Diomed more than all others, as indeed she does. We all despise her hate. 
at a great price we have bought and won the right to such contempt. With language of this kind, Pluronian Akmon, provoking Venus further than before, revived her former anger. His fierce words were then approved of by a few, while we, the greater number of his real friends, rebuked the words of Akmon. And while he prepared to answer us, his voice and even the passage of his voice were both at once diminished. His hair changed to feathers, while his neck took a new form. His breast and back covered themselves with down, and both his arms grew longer feathers, and his elbows curved into light wings. Much of each foot was changed to long toes, and his mouth grew still and hard with pointed horn. Amazed at his swift change were Lycus, Abbas, Nycteus, and Rexenor. And while they stared, they took his feathered shape. The larger portion of my army flew from their boat, resounding all around our oars with flapping of new-fashioned wings. If you should ask the form of these strange birds, they were like snowy swans, though not the same. Now, as Iapygian Danius, son-in-law, I scarcely hold this town and arid fields with my small remnant of trustworthy men. So Diomed made answer. Venulus soon after left the Caledonian realms, Pusician bays and the Mesapian fields. Among those fields he saw a darkened cave in woods and waving reeds. The half-goat Pan now lives there, but in older time the nymphs possessed it. An Apulian shepherd scared them from that spot. At first he terrified them with a sudden fear, but soon in scorn, as they considered what the intruder was, they danced before him, moving feet to time. The shepherd clown abused them, capering, grotesquely imitating graceful steps, and railed at them with coarse and foolish words. He was not silent till a tree's new bark had closed his mouth, for now he is a tree. And the wild olive's fruit took bitterness from him. It now has the tartness of his tongue. When the ambassadors returned and told their tale about Aetolian arms refused, the bold Rutulians carried on the war without those forces, and much blood was shed. Then Turnus, with a greedy torch, drew near the Trojan fleet, well built of close-knit pine. What had escaped the waves now feared the flame. Soon Mulciber was burning pitch and wax and other food of fire. Up the high masts he ran and fed upon the tight-furled sails, and even the benches in the curved hull smoked. When the Holy Mother of the Gods recalling how those same pines were felled on Ida's crest, filled the wind with a sound of cymbals clashed and trill of boxwood flutes. Borne through the light air by her famed lion yoke, she came and said, In vain you cast the fire with impious hand, Turnus, for I will save this burning fleet. I will not let the greedy flame consume trees that are part and members of my grove. It thundered while she spoke, and heavy clouds, following the thunder, 
brought a storm of bounding hail. The Australian brothers filled both air and swollen waters with their rage and rushed to battle. With the aid of one of them, the kindly mother broke the ropes which held the Phrygian ships, and drawing all prow foremost, plunged them underneath the wave. Softening quickly in the water's quiet depth, their wood was changed to flesh. The curving prows were metamorphosed into human heads. Blades of the oars made feet. The looms were changed to swimming legs. The sides turned human flanks. Each keel below the middle of a ship transformed became a spine. The cordage changed to soft hair, and the sail-yards changed to arms. The azure colour of the ships remained. As sea-nymphs in the water, they began to agitate with virgin sports the waves, which they had always dreaded. Natives of the rugged mountains, they are now so changed, they swim and dwell in the soft flowing sea, with every influence of birth forgot. Never forgetful of the myriad risks they have endured among the boisterous waves, they often gave a helping hand to ships tossed in the power of storms. Unless, of course, the ship might carry men of Grecian race. Never forgetful of the Phrygians in catastrophe, their hatred was so great of all Palaskians that they looked with joy upon the fragments of Ulysses' ship and were delighted when they saw the ship of King Alcinous growing hard upon the breakers, as his wood was turned to stone. Many were hopeful that a fleet which had received life strangely in the forms of nymphs would cause the chieftain of the Rutili to feel such awe that he would end their strife. But he continued fighting, and each side had its own gods, and each had courage too, which often can be as potent as the gods. Now they forgot the kingdom as a dower, forgot the sceptre of a father-in-law, and even forgot the pure Lavinia. Their one thought was to conquer, and they waged war to prevent the shame of a defeat. But Venus finally beheld the arms of her victorious son, for Turnus fell, and Ardier fell, a town which, while he lived, was counted strong. The Trojan swords destroyed it. All its houses burned and sank down in the heated embers, and a bird not known before that time flew upward from a wrecked heap, beating the dead ashes with its flapping wings. The voice, the lean, pale look, the sorrows of a captured city, even the name of the ruined city. All these things remain in that bird. Ardea's fallen walls are beaten in lamentation by his wings. The merit of Aeneas now had moved the gods. Even Juno stayed her lasting hate, when, with the state of young Iulus safe, the hero son of Cytheria was prepared for heaven. In a council of the gods, Venus arose, embraced her father's neck, and said, My father, ever kind to me, I do beseech your kind indulgence now. Grant 
dearest to Aeneas, my own son, and also your own grandson. Grant to him a godhead power, although of lowest class, sufficient if but granted. It is enough to have looked once upon the unlovely Rome, and once to have gone across the Stygian streams. The gods assented, and the Queen of Jove nodded assent with calm, approving face. The father said, You well deserve the gift, both you who ask it, and the one for whom you ask it. What you most desire is yours, my daughter, he decreed, and she rejoiced and thanked her parent. Born by harnessed doves over and through the light air, she arrived safe on Laurentine's shores. Numicius there winds through his tall reeds to the neighboring sea, the waters of his stream. And there she wills Numicius should wash perfectly away from her Aeneas every part that might be subject unto death, and bear it far with quiet current into Neptune's realm. The horned Numicius satisfied the will of Venus, and with flowing waters washed from her Aeneas every mortal part, and sprinkled him, so that the essential part of immortality remained alone, and she anointed him, thus purified with heavenly essence. And she touched his face with sweetest nectar and ambrosia mixed, thereby transforming him into a god. The throng of the Corini later named the new god Indiges, and honoured him. End of Book 14, Part 2 Recording by Kevin Weir, Seoul, South Korea